Now we turn to Zechariah, who is Haggai's contemporary. Zechariah also ministered at the same time as Haggai did, between 520 and 518 B.C., and he doesn't exactly dwell in the temple so much. His, more focus, his focus is mostly on the idea of Zerubbabel as a king and Joshua as a priest being co-partners, so to speak, leading over this new Jerusalem. And he's going to take the idea of this kind of a pathetic king, because he's just a governor of this dinky little group of people, and kind of this pathetic priest who is just this priest over these dinky people who are not doing what they're supposed to, and they're building this dinky little city of Jerusalem that's kind of pathetic with no wall that is horribly defended against the enemy. And yet God is going to take these two men, king and priests, and put them together over Jerusalem and establish them as this metaphorical picture of this incredibly glorious king-priest new Jerusalem that he'll establish one day. And so that is the more of Zechariah's focus here. So the main idea of the book of Zechariah is his informing Israel that the coming of the Messianic kingdom was dependent upon their faithfulness. As he establishes this image of the ultimate king priest over the ultimate new Jerusalem, he's saying, but you've got to at least make an effort to pursue God. If you don't make an effort to pursue God, this can't happen. And every year that this is delayed is because of your lack of desire to pursue God. Now, the book of Zechariah is arranged into two divisions. The first divisions, verses chapter eight, chapters 1 through 8, contains three messages. The second division, Zechariah 9 through 14, contains two oracles. The first division, chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month of Darius, second year, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berkiah, son of Ido, as follows. Yahweh was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore say to the people that Yahweh rules over all. Yahweh who rules over all, turn to me, says Yahweh who rules over all. I will turn to you, says Yahweh who rules over all. Do not be like your ancestors to whom former prophets called out, saying, Yahweh who rules over all says, Turn now from your evil wickedness. But they would by no means obey me, says Yahweh. As for your ancestors, where are they? And did the prophets live forever? But have my words and statutes which I command my servants and the prophets not outlived your, not outlived your fathers? Then they paid attention and confessed. And Yahweh who rules over all has indeed done what he said he would do to us because of our sinful ways. Now notice how many times it says in the book of Haggai, Yahweh rules over all, or Yahweh who is over all. And now we're seeing that same thing in the book of Zechariah. That's just constant repetition. And what God is making clear is, and this is an important message, because remember, they have just come from being ruled and oppressed by foreign nations who were really powerful. Yet God manipulated those nations as he willed, that we saw in the book of Daniel. And now they're back in the land, but they're still being ruled over these by these pagan nations who are very powerful, yet God manipulated these nations to his will as we saw the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now they're in the midst of that right now. And so God is reminding them that I am over all things, and I can take care of all things. And so he says, look, look back to the past. Your ancestors 
completely ignored the prophets. And look what happened to them. They went into exile. And the prophets are now dead. Yet the words that they spoke are still here. The people have not lasted. But the word of God has. And it will endure forever. So, you are now looking or tempted or acting like the people before that. What do you think is going to happen to you looking at what happened to them? And if you think that God's word is not true, then that's the only thing that's remained. Unlike them. And so he calls them not to look like that. And so he says, if you repent and you turn back to me, then you will not end up like them. This is how he begins. In these next verses, in these next chapters, chapters, the rest of chapter 1 going through chapter 8, there are eight visions that Zechariah is going to get. Kind of like Daniel. They're weird, apocalyptic, highly metaphorical visions. Women with wings and this kind of stuff, and baskets and horns talking and all this kind of stuff. He has eight visions. And they're, they're in a chiastic parallel. Okay, they're parallels. So there's going to be visions one, two, three, and four, and they will be mirrored by visions five, six, seven, and eight. One and five will have things in common. Two and six will have things in common. Three and seven will have things in common. And four and eight will have things in common. That's the way that they're structured in this book. And each vision is going to communicate something to Zechariah. And these are night visions. He's sleeping in his bed, and God is going to give him a vision, and it's, he's going to be mostly confused as he keeps seeing these visions. The first vision is verses 7 through 17. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in Darius' second year, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Ido, as follows. I was attentive that night and saw a man seated on a red horse that stood among some myrtle trees in the ravine. Behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I asked one nearby, What are these, sir? The angelic messenger who replied to me said, I will show you what these are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees spoke up and said, These are the ones whom Yahweh has sent to walk about on the earth. The writers then agreed with the angel of Yahweh, who was standing among the myrtle trees. We have been walking about on the earth, and now everything is at rest and quiet. And the angel of Yahweh then asked, Yahweh who rules over all, how long before you have compassion on Jerusalem and the other cities of Judah, which you have been so angry with these last 70 years? Yahweh then addressed good, comforting words to the angelic messenger who was speaking to me. Turning to me, the messenger then said, Cry out that Yahweh who rules over all says, I am very much moved for Jerusalem and for Zion, but I am greatly displeased with the nations that take my grace for granted. I was a little displeased with them, but they have only made things worse for themselves." Therefore, says Yahweh, I have become compassionate toward Jerusalem, and I will rebuild my temple in it, says Yahweh, who rules over all. Once more, a surveyor's measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. Speak up again in 
the message of Yahweh who rules over all. My cities will once more overflow with prosperity, and once more Yahweh will comfort Zion and validate his choice in Jerusalem. He is in this dream, and he has a vision. In this vision, he saw a man mounted on a red horse next to a myrtle tree. Now, we don't know what the significance of the red is, and we don't know the significance of the myrtle tree, but we know that a myrtle tree is a sweet aroma tree. And behind him were other men mounted on red, brown, and white horses. They had returned from scouting the whole earth. Now, some people have really tried to read into this. Like, well, the horse represents this, and the color represents this, and color represents this, color represents this kind of a thing. But it seems more likely that the multicolored horses distinguish them from each other. Because there's nothing in the context that points to a meaning to the colors. We have never seen colors like this used anywhere else. Okay, We've never seen other things where we see red, brown, and that kind of stuff. And so there's nothing like the law of first mention where you can go back to previous things in the Bible and look at comparisons. And even if it is metaphorical, it is so lost. Right? There, there is not any scholars out there who agree with each other on what these are metaphorical of. And most scholars just think that they're not metaphorical of anything. The idea is that they're horses. They're distinct, separate horses from each other with distinct riders. And they've ridden out through the world. And they're the messengers of God. And they have ridden through the entire world. And they have come back to report something to God. And they reported that there's peace on earth, so to speak. That everything is at rest. What they're probably, the context is most likely referring to the Persian Empire. That the Persian Empire has allowed everybody to return back to their lands. The Persian Empire has allowed freedom of religion, freedom of self-rule. The Persian Empire has outlawed slavery. And the Persian Empire has brought an end to massive conquest and war and oppression of other people. People are no longer being oppressed. What it does not mean is that there's literally peace on earth. It doesn't mean that there's no battles happening nowhere. No brothers or sisters are screaming at each other like everybody's just getting along with each other. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that there's no oppression. There's no massive government or empire impressing people, enslaving them to this drastic extent. And so things are pretty much good overall. Now the main point is not perfection, a lack of evil, a lack of conflict in the world. The main point is that God has allowed peace on earth to a certain extent because his judgment is no longer being executed on people. He has given relief from his people. Now, yeah, we could say, well, maybe during this time period in the Aztecs and the Mayans, there were some horrible things happening. But the context is the world of God's people. And the context is the wrath that God allowed to be executed and poured out on his people through the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And the context is that is over with. God's judgment and wrath is satisfied. His people and the people around them are no longer being oppressed and judged because he's been satisfied, and they're now being allowed to return to their homes and reestablish life. And that's the message that is being communicated here with these messengers. The angel then says, How long are you going to withhold your mercy, Yahweh? Like, how long are the people of God going to be oppressed and dominated and that kind of stuff? And Yahweh responded that pretty much he was turning away from his people and he was going to turn to the nations. 
and he was going to punish them. And that he was going to pour out his wrath on them now and that they needed to build a temple. And once that temple was rebuilt, then the mercy of God could be shown again. The mercy of God could be shown again. So what God is saying is, it's pretty much ready to be poured out on the people once they build the temple. And then I will secure them. And my mercy will be shown to them. And so this is the idea of the first vision. The first vision is a scouting party who's reporting relief from God's judgment and the beginning of God's mercy on his people, for his wrath has been sated. This is a very important passage, too, because this is, even though there's nothing that precedes this, that we can say, hey, these horsemen are kind of like that in the Bible, these horsemen become the preceding image of the four horsemen in the book of Revelation. And so notice that these four horsemen, these horsemen belong to Yahweh, and they do his bidding, and they scout the earth, and they report a message of peace. And the fact that they're so similar to the horses in Revelation means that those horses also are the messengers of God who scout the earth and bring messages back to God, so to speak. This passage, correctly understanding this passage, can kind of reinterpret your understanding of the four horsemen from a Tim LaHaye kind of perspective or a Left Behind series kind of perspective on the four horsemen. But we're not going into that because that's a different book. But I just kind of wanted to make a little brief connection there. Now we come to the second vision. The second vision is verses 18 through 21. He says this, Once again I looked up and this time I saw four horns. Remember these are horns, the horns of an animal, a ram or an ox or something like that, who spoke with me. What are these? He replied, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Next, Yahweh showed me four blacksmiths. I asked, what are these going to do? He answered, these horns are the ones who scattered Judah so that there was no, more, no one to be seen. But the blacksmiths have come to terrify Judah's enemies and cut off the horns of the nations and have thrust themselves against the land of Judah in order to scatter its people. This one's confusing. The horns are obviously a symbol of authority and power and kingship. We've seen that all throughout the Bible and we'll continue to see that. What specific nations that refers to is questionable. However, it seems obvious from the context that we're talking about the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So when God says these are the horns that scattered Israel, God's people, the only people that did that were the Assyrians and the Babylonians with a few minor groups of the Phoenicians and the Philistines that were doing it at the same time as the Syrians and Babylonians. can only do it because the Babylonians and the Syrians were initiating it. So the horns seem to refer to those nations who took Israel and Judah into the exile. So what are the blacksmiths? The blacksmith would be Persia. And Persia came and smashed the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then allowed the people to be unscattered, to return back to their lands, and there's no more nations scattering the people anymore. Now, why blacksmiths are used as a metaphor of Persia, nobody has any idea. And blacksmiths are not representative of any other nation of any time period or anything after this time period either. Most scholars believe that most likely there's something that we've lost in the historical records. There, I mean, God's metaphors are always like dead on. We've seen that with the winged lion and the four-headed leopard with wings and all that kind of stuff. 
most likely there's something that we don't understand about the Persians that have been completely lost, which there are millions of things that we don't understand about the Persian Empire because there's so much lost in the sands of time, so to speak, that there's some kind of connection here. Or even if blacksmiths isn't directly connected to Persia, it might be a metaphor of something else that we don't have an understanding that people would automatically see that as. Well, Persia is acting like that right now. That's the image. So the idea is how it, so the first vision is there's peace in the land, God's wrath is over with. Well, how is this peace over with? Or sorry, how is this peace able to come? Well, God used the blacksmiths, Persians, to destroy the horn, the power of the previous empires that executed the judgment of God. And we saw this in Isaiah when Isaiah predicted by name that Cyrus would come and bring an end to the wrath of God and return the people back to the land. And we saw this literally in 539 under Zerubbabel when Cyrus actually pronounced this. These visions seem to be pointing to things that have already happened. They're not looking forward to the future. They're metaphorically just describing something that has already happened. Now we come to the third vision, which is chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I looked again, and there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I asked, where are you going? And he replied to the message, measure. He replied to measure Jerusalem in order to determine its width, its length. And at this point, the angelic messenger who spoke to me went out and to another messenger came to meet him and said to him, hurry, speak to this young man as follows. Jerusalem will no longer be enclosed by walls because of the multitude of people and animals there. I, Yahweh, say, will be, I, Yahweh, will be a wall of fire surrounding Jerusalem and the source of glory in their midst. You there, flee from the northland, says Yahweh, for like the four winds of heaven I have scattered you, says Yahweh. Escape Zion, you who live among the Babylonians. For Yahweh who rules over all says to me that for his own glory he has sent me to the nations that plunder you. For anyone who touches you touches the pupil of his eye. And I am about to punish them in such a way, he says, that they will be looted by their own slaves. Then you will know that Yahweh, who rules over all, has sent them. This one begins to look forward to the future. It begins to anticipate a day one day. So the first thing that he sees in this vision is he sees an angel with a surveying line measuring the wall or the buildings of Jerusalem. Now, this surveying line is often used to describe what God, the, the, the thing that God is building. It's being built according to his specifications in some kind of a way. But the conclusion is that the population of this city is so large and so vast and overflowing that there are no walls that can be built around it. The walls would have to be massively huge, like miles upon miles, in order to encompass all these people. And these people are bursting at the seams in the city. And so no wall will be built ever around this city. But Yahweh himself would be the fire, the Shekinah glory of God that surrounds the people and protects them. So God is looking forward to a day when the city will be filled with people that is far more massive than they've ever experienced before. 
And likewise, there will be no need for walls because Yahweh's glory will be so prominent among their midst that he will protect them. The only way that Yahweh's presence could be that prominent among them is because they are actually being faithful to God. So it anticipates a day where they're truly sanctified. So what God is portraying a picture of is basically Nehemiah, yes, he's going to build walls, but it's only because Israel didn't become faithful to Yahweh, and so Yahweh didn't dwell with them in this kind of a powerful sense, and so he couldn't protect them in their way, and they're completely on their own, so to speak, to be defended by the nations. But what God is saying is, if you, if you truly come back to me, and you truly become faithful to me, then what is going to happen is, I'm going to fulfill the prophecy of all the nations streaming into Jerusalem. And when all the nations stream in Jerusalem, Jerusalem will be all the nations. And it will fill all the nations. This is the beginning of the new Jerusalem, the new Garden of Eden. And not only that, then I will dwell with you. Because you will actually be faithful. And I will dwell with you and I will bless you and protect you to such an extent that you won't need anything physical or anything earthly in order to bless you or protect you, because I will be that. And that's what he's looking forward to one day. And he's saying that, and that's exactly the picture that we see in Revelation. Remember in Revelation, it says, Behold, I saw at the throne of God an uncountable number of people from every nation, every tribe, every language on the earth. And then it says that that altar of God, that kingdom of God at the end of Revelation, came down to earth and dwelt with them, and that the city is not a building with a wall, but it's the people of God, and that there was no need for a sun or a light because Jesus himself was dwelling with us, and the glory of God was going throughout all the earth. And so the prophet Zechariah, or the vision that God is giving Zechariah, is looking forward to that day, that day, and saying, you won't, you won't need this stuff anymore as you anticipate that day. What makes these things powerful is a lot of times we, we know the book of Revelation, and this is one of my arguments I'm going to make when you go through the book of Revelation, is Revelation is solely rooted in the prophets in the First Testament. And you have to understand these languages to understand what's happening one day. And you need to realize a lot of things that we grew up learning the idea of the kingdom of God coming back and that kind of stuff is not a new idea in Revelation. That was firmly established. Actually, more specifically and more concretely in the prophets than probably ever in the book of Revelation. All Revelation is doing is really detailing more specifically how God truly is bringing all the nations in. Revelation seems to focus mostly on two things. That the Jews kind of forgot about all the nations being included in the kingdom of God. And Revelation's like, no, 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 no. That's going to be a major point I'm going to hit on this kingdom of God coming one day. And that it was not through the efforts of Israel that would execute the kingdom of God on earth one day, but it was Jesus, the ultimate Israel, who made this possible. And it seems to be that Revelation is not repeating. Revelation does not communicate anything new that the prophets haven't already said. Revelation is just highlighting the idea that Jesus is the branch, the king Messiah that made all the prophets what they said possible. And that's the main point. Revelation is actually pretty much a repetition of the prophets, 
except the idea is that missing piece in the center is Jesus. And he's the one that makes all this possible. And so this is what you need to understand when you're going to understand that book one day.